You're listening to audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. This morning, our sermon text is from Psalm 96. Let's read uh, this, or you can can listen and follow along. It's on the screen as as I read. Sing a new song to the Lord. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his wondrous works among all peoples, for the Lord is great and is highly praised. He is feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and enter his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Let the whole earth tremble before him. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be shaken. He judges the peoples fairly. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea and all that fills it resound. Let the fields and everything in them celebrate. Then all the trees of the forest will shout for joy before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his faithfulness. This is God's word. Amen. Take a seat. All right. Well, I'm very excited. It feels like between like the scriptures that Aaron shared and the prayer that he prayed in the worship, like, I don't know, it almost feels like a sermon in and of itself so far. So I'm just excited to to add a sermon on top of just the celebration that we've <laughs> that we've already put into uh, put into effect here today. So my name is Patrick. I am not one of the pastors here at Kings Cross Raleigh, um, but it is a joy and a privilege to be able to preach the word here today um, and to be a a conduit for for how God's working uh, in and through His people. So um, I'm going to go ahead and, and pray for us real quick, and we'll we'll get started. So. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we're, we're so thankful today just to be able to uh, gather here and just to celebrate and celebrate the fact that um, you are God, that you have always been God, and that you have revealed yourself to us, um, that you have done so through Jesus Christ our Lord, uh, that you sent him to earth 2,000 years ago to be born as a baby, and the fact that because of that event, um, because of everything he came to do and did in fact here as King's Cross, uh, which is very exciting. Um, and if you'll look to your left, you see that we have like this little wreath thing with candles. Does anyone know what that is? Bingo. It is an Advent wreath. How many people grew up in churches where y'all actually did an Advent wreath? I see a couple hands. I also see some hands not raised. So this is great. That means I get to explain exactly why this thing is up here and why these candles are lit. So um, 
I specifically was introduced to this because I grew up in the Methodist church. It's a prominent thing in the Methodist church. And so the idea there is that for each week that you celebrate Advent, you light progressively more candles and there's a theme associated with each one. And then eventually on Christmas Eve, you light the big middle candle, which is symbolic of Christ actually coming to earth. Um, But then the rest of the candles are meant to have themes established where we can think about and celebrate and anticipate the coming of Christ. So the first one um, is typically symbolic of hope. And so that's the hope that God himself has promised that he's going to send his Messiah to his people and that he has, in fact, done that. And because of that, we have hope. We have hope in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, for the restoration of our relationship with him, and the fact that we have a hope to share with other people. So typically week one, celebration of hope. The second candle is the celebration of peace. And that's the, that's the theme of meditation for the second week of Advent. And that's peace in kind of two parts. So the first is that because of Christ, God establishes peace between God and man. That we are in rebellion against God because of our sin and sinfulness. And by Christ's coming and sacrifice, he takes us as traitors and makes us his people, makes us his family, and he ends that rebellion. And then he also establishes peace between people, between each other, so that because of Christ, because of what he's done, he sends his spirit to us to then reorient our lives and our goals and our desires towards Christ so that we can actually do what Christ calls us to do, which is love our neighbor as ourselves, treat others as you would also be treated. Those type of commands establish peace between each other. And so that's the peace then that we have because of Christ, which brings us to this week. And you'll notice that the candle for this week is a little bit of a different color. It's a pink color instead of purple. So this is the week historically meant to to have us meditate on the joy that Christ brings to us by his coming. And it's typically a rose color because purple colors, if you look at the history of the church, are meant to be times to like visualize kind of a, a more reflective spirit as you kind of think about those things. Well, the pink candle means that like the things that we've been meditating on are meant to actually result in something, is actually meant to result in an outpouring of something, and that is joy. So... The pink candle is joy. That's where we're at this week. And due to that, um, because joy is kind of the the theme that we're kind of capturing and encapsulating as we look at Psalm 96, I'm actually going to be using the lyrics of various various parts of joy to the world to kind of work through the main idea of Psalm 96 together. And then the structure, as broken down into four sections, will each have a lyric associated from Joy to the World. So that's kind of where we're going. Um, wanted to share that with you all. So the title of our sermon this week um, is Joy to the Earth, the Savior Reigns. Um, and then the main idea that I like to, to come across and, and highlight for us is the fact that we, is, is pretty simple, is that This psalm helps us to rejoice in the reign of the one true and just God, Yahweh. So that's where we're going. Um, As we study today, we're going to break it down into four sections. So verse 1 through 3, just to kind of give you a picture of where we're headed. Um, Verses 1 through 3 will have the theme, let men their songs employ. Verses 4 through 6 will be, let earth receive her king. Verses 7 through 9 will be, let every heart prepare him room. 
and verses 10 through 13, he rules the world with truth and grace. Um, so as we turn our attention um, to this psalm, I do want to have a little bit of background for, uh, for how this psalm operates in Scripture because it's historically, one of, it's historically part of one of the greatest celebrations of joy in the Bible up to that point. So specifically, this psalm, 96, is found with very little change in another place in Scripture, and that's in 1 Chronicles 16, 23 through 33. I won't make you go there, but I will just kind of explain what's going on with that and why this is important for us as we kind of turn our attention then to the coming of Christ. So, in 1 Chronicles 16 is the narration of one of the most joyous celebratory events in all of Scripture. And that's where Israel's King David, at the time God's chosen king, is bringing the Ark of the Covenant, that is the the visible physical manifestation of God's faithful covenant with his people and his actual presence, he's bringing that to the city of Jerusalem, Israel's capital city. It's never been there before, and it's kind of the culmination of all of Israel's history up to that point. So if you think about Israel's history, they were in Egypt back in the book of Exodus. Through God's miraculous salvation, they're rescued out of Egypt, brought out, given the law, given the covenant on Mount Sinai, wander in the desert for 40 years, enter Canaan, conquer Canaan, wait for this king that was promised in, uh, was promised previously like in the book of Deuteronomy, and essentially God's presence and blessing would be there for it all. So this is where everything for Israel has been headed up to this point. So 1 Chronicles 16, you actually have that happen. You have David bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and it is a party. Like, it is an absolute celebration. There's a parade. The entire nation of Israel is singing. King David is dancing in front of the Ark the entire way, and it is massive. So as you read that chapter... Um, it's that King David who actually, as he's bringing that Ark of the Covenant to Israel, he puts it in a specific place. He puts it in a tent, which in the Bible, there's another word for tent. It's called a tabernacle. And for Israel, that was where they met God. That was God's meeting place with his people. So he's bringing it to Jerusalem. He puts it in its resting place at that point in time, the tabernacle. And then he includes this psalm, Psalm 96, as part of a group of psalms that he then directs all of Israel to praise God with for that entire event. So, that's the background of Psalm 96. Now, what does this event in 1 Chronicles 16 have to do with us? What does this have to do with Advent? Well, it's not the last time we'll see a Davidic king involved with a tabernacle commanding the praises of his people. Because we see in Matthew 1.1 that Jesus Christ is the son of David. We see in John 1.14 that he is God incarnate who became flesh and tabernacled, that is, became the meeting place between God and man, he himself physically with his people. We see that in John 1.14. And it is Jesus' rule and reign that extends over all the earth and commands the praises of all people. And we see that in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. So as we look at Psalm 96 today, um, it naturally fits into this theme of joy, doesn't it? Um, we see that historically, and then we, we get to jump into that and use this psalm to really point ourselves forward towards Christ's coming as 
the culmination and the implementation of our own joy in him. So let me take a drink of water. And then we'll actually get into the psalm itself. So to reiterate one more time the theme of Psalm 96, which is to rejoice in the reign of the one true God, Yahweh, who is just. So verses 1 through 3, uh, let men their songs employ. And that's going to pop up there here for us. So uh, I've highlighted uh, three words there, um, and that's the word sing. So the psalm begins with a threefold declaration to do something, and that is sing, and to do it towards someone, and that is the Lord. You can actually hear that in the Hebrew if you, if you pull it up. It's actually the same phrase repeated three times. It's sheru lawe, sheru lawe, sheru lawe. And you can really see it. And, and that type of reputation is emblematic of, of poetry in the Bible. It's meant to focus us in on the fact that we are responding to a specific person here. That is, we are singing to Yahweh. Now, in the Jewish culture, that the name of God, Yahweh, is actually not spoken. It's deemed too holy to speak. So they actually use a title when they speak, and that title is Lord. And that's actually highlighted for us in the Bible so whenever you see the Lord in all caps in scripture, that is the actual name of God, Yahweh. It's not just his title, it's his actual name. And so what that means is that there's a very specific and knowable God that we are to rejoice in to the point of song and we know his name. So it's, re it's really cool about this psalm. It's actually going to repeat his name 11 times. There's only 13 verses. There's almost as many mentions of God's specific name as verses in this psalm. So the idea is over and over again that we are reminded that we're not praising a generic God, some guy named God that we don't really know who he is, but, but he's kind of out there over all things. He's not an unknowable God. He's not a far away God, but he is specific and he is knowable. And yes, he is far above us in splendor and majesty, as the psalm will say later, and, and in might and power. But it's also the fact that he draws near to, draws near to us and reveals himself to us. Um, and then we are to sing to him as we enjoy his presence, as we find him and get to know him. And the fact that he is noble in character, which we see in verses 2 and 3, is that we Bless his name, we proclaim his salvation from day to day. We declare his glory among the nations, his wondrous works among all people. And the idea there in verses 2 and 3 is that his character, as highlighted, is a character of salvation. He is a God who does something. He saves. He saves us. He saves a people. And for that to be... Um, for that to be joy-inducing news, there actually has to be a recognition of the fact that we need saving, right? Is this doesn't mean anything until we see our own need for him. And we actually can see the fact that this is God's character. He is a saving God and he saves sinful people. Because in the book of Exodus, Moses specifically requests to see God's glory. And in response to that request, God passes in front, of his, in front of Moses, speaks his name, and says these words from Exodus 34, 6 through 7. He says, the Lord. Again, that's his name, Yahweh. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. 
So the idea there is that we are iniquitous, rebellious, and sinful people. We're born by nature sinful, and, we're, and we do sinful things. We are by nature sinful, and then we actually live that out and, and do things that are against God's will and, and against his character. That's who I am. That's how I was born. And that's how every single person in this room was also born. We are born by nature sinful and sinning. But the good news, and this is why we can celebrate, is the fact that he forgives, he saves us from our sinfulness by actually coming down to us and being born as a, as a person, as a human, like you and me. And he comes and like his actual name that's given to him is Jesus, which in Hebrew, Yeshua, means Yahweh saves. So when Jesus appears, he's given the name that is God's character. He saves. He is a saving God. And so he came to live a perfect life among us, and then he died a death in our place, and his, that, that death atoned for the sins of everyone who will believe in him, every single person. And then, three days later, we see that that actual sacrifice, it wasn't just any dude dying on a cross, that doesn't do anything. You know, if, if any of us died on a cross, that doesn't accomplish anything for anyone. But three days after he died, he rose again. He rose again. And that means it was effective. That means it actually did what he said he was going to do. And so then he ascended into heaven. Then he sent his spirit to us, to those who believe in him, so that we can actually do what this psalm says, which is to rejoice and sing and give praise to him. That's the process. That's how we actually get to this point. That's how we can actually sing and praise his name is because of all of that. And so that's why we use this as a part of Advent. So it's no small wonder then, when Jesus was actually born 2,000 years ago, that songs resound throughout the narrative surrounding his birth. So we actually read a few of those in Luke, the first two chapters. You'll see throughout, like the, you'll see the narrative section, and then your Bibles, it will actually show those songs as psalms. Like those are, po that's poetry, that song interspersed throughout that narrative. Um, so we, we see the song specifically that, that Elizabeth, who's the mother of John the Baptist, sings when she sees Mary for the first time, who's pregnant with Jesus. And then Mary sings her own song, her great Magnificat in return. And then, as we read earlier, Zechariah, when John is born, he sings, he prophesies. And then the angels sing, which we read earlier, when Jesus is born, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth towards people he favors. That's a, that's a that's poetry, that's a song in the scripture. And then we also read uh, Simeon's own song when he sees Jesus, little eight-day baby Jesus, uh, in Jerusalem when his parents bring him to the temple, and then he himself sings. So it's a joyous event, even in scripture, and then it's, it's reason for us as Christians then to also create songs. And we've already sung a few of them this morning. I believe, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, the little, like, title down at the bottom said a 12th century Latin song or something like that. Like we've been singing about this for thousands of years and we sing songs like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, songs like Angels We Have Heard on High, songs like Joy to the World, which we're using today for this psalm. So um, the idea here is that in Christ we see God fully in his compassionate, saving, gracious nature and the implication and the occasion there is for us to sing. And this is a command 
there's, there's no being around the bush with the psalmist here. He says, sing to the Lord. There is, that is a command in scripture. And so, yes, that means we actually sing. We give vocal praise to God for what he has done. But then there's also a second connection that the, the song we sing to God for this is also internal. It's internal within us, and then it makes its way out of us as we live our, our lives as Christians. And Paul draws this connection for us in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 5, he writes in verse 15 through 21, he says, Pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. So then there the Lord, speaking through Paul, goes on actually in the next few, next few sections to, to actually flesh out how this spirit song-filled life plays out in our everyday relationships, the, the relationships that we experience every day. That is the relationships between husband and wife, the relationships between parents and children, and the relationships between worker and employer or master, just because the language there is from, from slave to master. But there's an actual implication there for us in the workplace there as well. So these are everyday relationships that we experience. So then, because there's a close connection in Paul between how you sing, what's going on in your heart to the Lord, and actually how you live that out, how you walk and how you sing are inseparably intertwined. And we can actually go a little further and say that your walking, your Christian life, is actually a song in and of itself. So when we see this command here to sing a new song, we're not just singing but we're also living. We're also looking at how God has called us to live and in joyful obedience to him, we live that out because of what he's done for us, because he saved us, because he loves us, therefore we love him in return. We mentioned the previous theme of, of Advent week was the theme of peace, and that's peace between man and man. And that's lived out by treating your neighbor as yourself. That's loving your neighbor as yourself, and that's lived out in specific ways. So, we express our joy and emotion to God specifically by how we live. And there's an encouragement there because if this was just for like singing a song, like, oh man, not all of us are good singers. <laughs> you know, it's actually a really cool encouragement that even if you don't sing that well, there's a way in which your life sung every day, every second of every minute by how you live out. That can be a more beautiful and melodic melody and praise to God than like Josh Groban singing A Holy Night. If you don't know who Josh Groban is, that's okay. Look him up on YouTube. Beautiful singer. Your life can look better than his voice because of how you live out your life in Christ. So, that's singing. Now, the other implication is, is here in the psalm in verse 1. It says, let the whole earth sing to the Lord as well. So lastly here, the praise is not just for you to sing, right? It's not just for us. It's meant to overflow outward towards how we relate to other people, and then we call other people into this same praise. We're meant to live joyful lives and sing joyful things and say joyful things and 
proclaim the gospel so that other people can do the same thing that we're doing. Because that's God's will for the whole earth. That's what he wants. He wants the whole earth to sing. And so when we believe this truly, and when we internalize that this is the best thing that's ever happened to us, we live that out for the sake of not just ourselves, but for the sake of others. And we speak about this because it's God's command that the whole earth praise him. So, that's verses 1 through 3. Again, let men their songs employ. I'm going to pause real quick. Okay, so verses 4 through 6 then is our next section. And the theme there is, let earth receive her king. So, verses 1 through 3, uh, the joy and praise we direct towards God. And, um, and again, I've highlighted a specific section that we're going to dwell on for a second. But the joy and praise toward God for his glory and salvation isn't just because he is a compassionate, gracious, and saving God. It's because he is the only gracious, compassionate, saving God. He's the only God that there is. And that's very clear here. It says, For the Lord is great and highly praised. He is feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And it's actually um, the Hebrew there for, for worthless idols there um, that we have highlighted is, um, is actually one word. That word is elilim in Hebrew. So when you actually look at that, that actually means not gods. You can also think about it being ungods or anti-gods. Like these things are not gods. Like that's the idea there. The gods of the peoples are not gods at all because there's only one God. But there's also... Uh, a second word in the background, and that's the word elil, elil, elilim. It's kind of sound like the same thing, but that's specifically the word for something that is useless or worthless. And you can see that in Job and Zechariah is where that's used specifically. So because there's a little bit of, of double entendre there, that's why we, we get that translation, worthless idols. So um, why are these gods considered worthless non-entities? Why is that? Well, it's because... These are the gods of the peoples, or you can say in that case, created by the peoples. These are gods which other people have kind of set up for themselves. They've, they've created them with their own hands, but there's only one God, Yahweh, whose name now we've read five times. He created the heavens. And so he is the one who creates while all other gods are created. If you think about it, if you want to get like a visual picture of how far above he is feared above all gods, how far above these gods are. Like if you were standing on top of Mount Everest and you could see down like all the way down to the beach and there's an ant on the beach, like that is a scarce comparison for how much God is far above all these idols, all these other gods. There's no comparison. That's the idea. So the implication there here for us is that since these, all these other gods of the peoples are worthless idols, there's only one God to worship. Well, what gods are you worshiping? What gods have I worshipped? Is it yourself? Is it your occupation? Your status? Is it money? Is it your relationships? Or is it something else? Is it your own sense of self-sufficiency? What do you worship? That God is nothing. It's nothing in comparison to this God. 
So the implication is to turn from them. Whatever we're worshiping, and because we're all sinful, we all worship other gods. We've all done this. But the implication is to turn from them specifically and to worship instead this one unique creator, savior, God. He makes himself known to us and he invites us into his presence through Jesus so that we can actually see clearly what is described in verse 6, and that's splendor and majesty and strength and beauty. Now notice that these qualities are actually before him in his sanctuary, as you see in in verse 6 up there. So these are qualities of God's presence in a specific location, which we mentioned in 1 Chronicles was the tent where, where where David put the Ark of the Covenant. But later would be the temple, which was built in Jerusalem, and that's where the Ark then essentially transitioned there. But that was God's sanctuary, first the tabernacle and then the temple. But now in the age of Christ, what is the temple now? Well, it's actually us. It's God's people. We are the place of God's presence. We are the place where he dwells. And again, Paul is helpful for us because he writes in 2 Corinthians 6, 16 through 18. And he says, What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, speaking of the church, speaking of that specific Corinthian church, which, by the way, is a huge encouragement because the Corinthian church was a mess. Like That church is still the temple of the living God. For, and as God said, I will dwell and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So there's qualities outlaid in verse 6 once again. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And yes, they uniquely and perfectly belong to God, but he also makes those self-same qualities known through his temple, his sanctuary. And for, for us now living in the age of Christ, that's us. He makes those qualities known to the world through us, through his church. And so he calls us as his king, enthroned over all creation, to turn from idols and instead put on and display his splendor and majesty and his beauty and strength. So again, turn from your idols. Worship instead this one true, unique, splendid, majestic, strong, beautiful God. And realize that that God is also Jesus. That is Jesus Christ. These self-same qualities are qualities of Christ himself. So he is splendid and majestic. He is strong and beautiful. And so as his church, we make him known to the world by how we live. So worship him above all idols. Worship Jesus and treasure him above all treasures. So that's verses four through six. Let earth receive her what? Her king, her ruler, the one who reigns over all things. And so now we've made it through the first half of the psalm. And as we go through the second half of the psalm, you'll actually start to see kind of a reiteration of some of the same themes and some of the same structures. And we'll start in verses 7 through 9, which the theme there is, let every heart prepare him room. And I'll read this here for us as well. Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and enter his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Let the whole earth 
tremble before him. So if you think back to verses one through three, there was a threefold declaration. Sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord. We get a similar thing here. Ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord. Again, in the Hebrew, Yahavlaweh, Yahavlaweh, Yahavlaweh. Three times it's repeated, very poetic. So verses one through three then, there was, a, there was an emphasis there to actually sing in joyful praise to the Lord. But with this word ascribe, the emphasis changes now. The emphasis changes instead to worshiping God in fear and awe before him. And why is that? Because the word ascribe means to give. So we're giving something to the Lord, and the implication is that we're giving something that he deserves. He deserves our praise. And why is that? Because we've already seen that he is the king over all things. He is the Lord over all things. He is the only king and the only one, the only creator God over all things. So because of that, he deserves all praise of all the peoples because that's what we were created for in the first place. And so we're commanded to worship God in fear and awe that he's do this worship from every family of every people. You families of the people, let the whole earth tremble before him. There's no one excluded from that. Everyone is included in this and that we are meant to all come before him in humble worship. And the reason why specifically is the reason why specifically is actually in verse 9 it says, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And so we come to God, if you think about verses 1 through 3, with joy, but also with reverence. It's a, it's a joy tempered by reverence, but it's also a reverence bursting with joy. We need to understand that the, that the God we approach and worship is holy. He is completely and utterly holy. And so... Um, that creates a tension because that creates a tension because we're we're called to to bring our worship to someone who is completely and incredibly holy and that tension exists even in the context of the psalm if you remember back to uh first chronicles we mentioned in, in chapter 16 there's this joyous celebration because david is bringing the ark of the covenant to jerusalem but it's not the first time he tried to do that in Three chapters earlier, he had already tried, and instead of, and, and he was celebrating, and he was, and he was calling the other people to celebrate, but the ark of God was on an ox cart, instead of being carried reverently by his people, and a man named Uzzah placed his hand on the ark and was struck dead because of the holiness of God. And so David will actually pause that endeavor because it wasn't handled with the proper reference and all. It wasn't handled the proper way according to how God had explained that his ark should be transported or should be carried. He'll even say, and this is in 1 Chronicles 13, he says, how can I ever bring the ark of God to me? Like that's the point to which he got because he was like, oh man, I really screwed up with how I did this the first time. I did not treat this event with the proper reverence and awe that I should have. I didn't treat God's presence the way that I should have. So David understood that we are not holy. Like the contrast between our between his holiness and our unholiness is so great that Uzzah was struck dead merely for touching the physical manifestation of God's presence among his people. And we say elsewhere in scripture that if you saw the face of God, he is so holy that you would die if you saw him face to face. And so that's why in the book of Luke, which we read earlier as well, we've read so much stuff today, it's so great. Um, 
That's why when the glory of God appeared to them, they were terrified. Like, if you look at the glory of God in the Old Testament, for instance, when it appeared to the whole nation of Israel on Mount Sinai, there was fire, there was smoke, there were earthquakes, there was a trumpet sounding, and they were terrified. Like, they said to Moses, we're so afraid that we need you to go speak to God in our place. We cannot approach him because his glory is so great and so manifestly above like who we are as people. Like it terrified an entire nation. And now it shows up to these shepherds, this great, unimaginable, unapproachable glory of God full in their faces. And what's the message? It's fear not. Well, how is that possible? How is that possible? If this was a glory that could bring a whole people to their knees, how is it that the message is fear not this time when it appears? It's because a Savior was born in Bethlehem. It's because a Savior was born. He is the glorious God who can be seen face to face. And he was seen face to face. He walked on this earth for about 33 years. He was God himself. And people saw him. John calls that out specifically as like, we have seen his glory. We have seen him specifically. And it's the God that can be seen because in Jesus, we get God. And because he comes in, in the form of likeness of men, he can actually bring God to us, have us see him face to face. That instead of us dying when we see that face, we can now live because of his birth, because of his life, because of his death and because of the new life that we have. So, because of Christ, God is now fully accessible to us in worship. If you, um, if you think about the Old Testament and when this specific psalm was written, there was actually a veil placed in wherever the, the ark rested, whether it was in the tabernacle or in the temple, there was always a veil separating it from everyone else, that only one guy, the high priest, could go in and enter into that presence one time for a year. No one else could go in. No one else could actually be in the presence of God's presence, not in the way that that was actually inclusive of him actually being near to us um, and being able to be physically present with us as we saw in Christ. There was a separation there. But as we see in Luke 23, 45, Christ's finished work on the cross tears apart this veil, tears it apart, top to bottom, torn in two, so that every person on earth now can approach God without the, without the need of, of God being separated from us, um, without his glory being entirely other from us. Like We can now approach God because of Christ. And so, yes, we can approach him in, in joy, reverence, and humility, but fully and without restriction now because of Christ and give him not the the sacrifice the offering of of animals which is how they used to worship but instead the spiritual sacrifice of our entire lives devoted towards Christ that's what he deserves again we're ascribing this to him he deserves this type of praise this type of life that is what we are meant for and that's what again let the whole earth tremble before him. That's what we are called to enjoin others to do alongside with us. So, verses 7 through 9, let every heart prepare him room. Let your heart give room to the king of kings. 
because he deserves that place. He deserves that pride of place in your life and in your heart. So the implication there, turn to him and worship him as king because that is his just due. So we come to our final section of Psalm 96, verses 10 through 13, which our theme here is, he rules the world with truth and grace. And shall read for us. It says, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be shaken. He judges the peoples fairly. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea and all that fills it resound. Let the fields and everything in them celebrate. Then all the trees of the forest will shout for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his faithfulness. So as, as the psalm draws to a close, there's an there's a orientation from the joy expressed and rooted in the past and present revelation of who God is, himself as king and savior and creator, and orients itself toward expressing joy towards God as judge with a more future orientation. So verse 10 specifically um, forms a bridge to the previous sections. Again, there's some repetition in this psalm where the psalmist commands the listener to tell the nations of Yahweh's rule and reign, and the exhortation here to the nations, say among the nations the Lord reigns, He's re- the nations are reminded that God, what God has established cannot be shaken and that he judges the peoples fairly. And so the idea is once again that nations would turn from their sinful ways, from their idols, and worship the one true God and do so, while there is still time. There's echoes here specifically of Psalm 2, and we'll put that on the screen for us as well, because I want to read the end of Psalm 2 here for us, where the nations specifically are warned, So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe, and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion, for his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. And I'll pause here, and we'll leave that up on the screen, because we're thinking now about specifically how Christ is portrayed here. He is the Son, pay homage to the Son, um, that the Psalm, the Psalm highlights for us. So the message we're commanded then to preach to the nations is this, that Christ saves but the time to turn to him is now, while you're still alive and before he comes. Because he is the one whose name is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's going to be something that everyone will say one day. And you can either say it with joy or you can say it with fear. And that's the idea, is that everyone will see him, and everyone is going to recognize him. And when he returns, he's not going to come as a baby in a manger like he did the first time. Revelation 19, 11 through 16 mentions specifically he's coming as a king on a war horse to establish his just reign, and to, because he's on a war horse, right, there's enemies of Christ. There's people who, who, yes, have turned their back on him, and he will justly, judge them and punish them and at that point in time it's going to be too late it's going to be too late for people to believe because at that point in time everyone will see him everyone will acknowledge him those who believe 
will be saved, and those who have not believed will be judged. And the crazy thing about this is, if we're going, and, and we can uh, zoom back here to, to Psalm 96 here, is that he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his faithfulness. And then earlier in the section, he judges the peoples fairly. There will be no one who will be able to say unjust when he judges. Every person will be able to say, you are right for your judgments. And for the people who believe in him, that's a great, joyous occasion because those who have believed in him, like we have received his blood as our justification before him. We are the ones who, who say, yes, you have been gracious to us. You've been kind to us because you have died for my sins, because I've accepted that. And so in that, um, it's, he's essentially exchanged his life for ours because he died on the cross. His own body and blood paid for our justification. And so we can then celebrate the fact that, yes, we should be subject to condemnation, but we're not because Christ has saved us and because we've believed in that. For those who have not, though, again, Psalm 2 is clear that they will perish in their rebellion. So as we turn our attention back to the conclusion of Psalm 96, this judgment is, yes, it's going to be, there's going to be in some ways where it's terrible. It's going to be terrible when it happens because, again, God's desire is that none should perish but all should be saved. There's going to be, there's going to be a judgment on that day and not everyone will be saved. And that's going to be a terrifying experience. But what this psalm says is that actually for those who belong to him, and even notice here for creation itself, let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice, the sea and all that fills it resound, let the fields and everything in them celebrate, the trees of the forest shouting for joy. Even creation itself will actually celebrate this judgment as a momentous, joyous occasion. And we've actually read about the fact in Romans 8 earlier, which Aaron read for us and so poignantly it was wonderful, is that right now, like we're still all under the effects of sin. We're still under not just our own sinfulness, but, but we see sin just in how broken things are, how broken we are. Our bodies break down, we get sick, we get incurable diseases, which diabetes is one, like that's like that type of thing exists. And then of course we see natural disasters happen and people lose their lives to hurricanes, tornadoes, fires. Those types of things will exist until Christ comes again. And that's why all creation one day will rejoice because when Christ comes, all that will be undone. All of that, there'll be nothing bad left. And that's the hope that we have. That's the joy that we have. So one day, every sin will be accounted for. Every wrong will be righted. Everything that has ever bad that has ever happened will be accounted for and undone. And then those who in Christ will be renewed forever, and those who are not in Christ will be justly judged. And then everything will be restored. And that's the hope that we have. So right now we're groaning, we're waiting for that day. We're pushing forward and we feel those effects and creation groans as well, but we're going we're gonna to rejoice forever at the coming, at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes again, 
in final victory, we will be able to celebrate that day because of the work that he's done, because of the salvation that he gives to us, and because he is the one who can actually undo all the destruction of sin forever and ever. We sang it. That's our long-term goal. And we use words like forever and eternal because that's who Christ is. And when his reign is fully finalized, it will be forever and it will be eternal. And while we await that day, we remember that 2,000 years ago he was born, that a Savior was born. We rejoice that we know him and we tell others about him. And so in that intervening time period, we work as ambassadors for Christ. We plead with others as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, be reconciled to God. And this psalm also says, share this joy that we have with us. And so now in celebration of the joy we have in this great God, let's pray and then let's come to the table together and celebrate the fact that Christ has given his body and blood for us and for our salvation. And that's a celebratory, joyful event. Okay. Dear Lord, we thank you for today, and today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to, to either recognize that you have offered salvation and freely believe, but it's also a reminder of the fact that today is you have saved, and that you came specifically to earth 2,000 years ago as a baby to live among us, to die among us, and then to be raised again so that by your life, by your eternal life, we might have the same. And so we thank you, Lord, uh, that you came. And we remember that event and we celebrate. We praise you. We praise you with the praise that is deserving, that you deserve specifically for your great salvation because you have revealed yourself to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for the gospel, for this wonderful good news. And Lord, help us to believe. And you pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.